I'm Adam Manis. And I'm Peter Martin. And you're listening to the You'll Hear It podcast. Today we're going to talk about how to get gigs at good places. I'm all ears. Okay. Now, this is a question from Joe from the Facebook group, the Jazz Piano Studio group. What's up, Joe? What's up, Joe? And so... Uh, it's interesting how to get gigs at good places. I'm thinking great places, yeah. spectacular places, yeah, extra- yeah, yeah, yeah. basically not bad places, right? Right. Okay. So how do we do that? Well, uh, step one would be to actually sound good. <laughs> <laughs> so that you fit in at the good <laughs> so place. That you fit in at the good place. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Right. Yeah, no, no. Uh, joking aside, have it together. Have your music together. Don't, you know, if you're trying to get gigs anywhere, good place, great place, crappy place, yep. you have your music together, if you have your playing together, if you have a sound, a concept, other good players, all of these things help in getting gigs in good venues. Is that kind of like the dress for success concept? Very much so, right. yeah. Or just like, you know, if, if the content that you're submitting to the, to the venue isn't good, why would they ever book you? you right, know? right. And then I think it has to be, you know, you want to be at good places, but then it needs to be appropriate places for you. Totally. And for your group. Also very important. For your music. Now, that doesn't mean it needs to be typical or, you know, it can't be an unexpected place. Like, maybe you have a vision for your, you know, jazz string quartet with you know vocal ensemble and 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 you're thinking about the atrium at the art museum you've you're a visionary and you see how that that could work maybe they don't know that that could be a great thing so you're going to need to kind of talk them into it and explain your vision on it which is fine but i mean just make sure it's appropriate to your music and that you can kind of visualize your yourself succeeding in that kind of situation you know like i love classical music and i used to play a lot of it i've been playing much lately, but I want to get back into it. So I'm going to do some classical gigs in the next few years. Nice. But I can tell you the first gig is not going to be a solo piano recital at Carnegie Hall. It's not? No, I don't think so. I'm I mean, the verdict, you know, <laughs> not that I would love to do that and I would prepare as much as I could, but I mean, I want to go to where it's appropriate to my level and, and kind of where I'm at with my classical journey right now. So it's going to be like, you know, next to the indoor pool at the local YMCA <laughs> playing for some old ladies as they swing laps, and we're going to work our way to Carnegie Hall. Just as Chopin nocturnes as old ladies do. <laughs> hey, it's good, it's swimming. good swimming music, Yeah, man. that's right, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, our next tip is to, and this is, really applies if the venue that you want to play is near you, but that's to patronize that venue, to go there and see shows, to get to know the people that run it, that book it, that own it, that work there, you know, Make yourself known. Put your face out there. Right. Like, it's very helpful to, to build these relationships with people so that they know that you're not an insane person that wants to try to book a night of music at their venue. Right. You know? And so notice that Adam said patronize the venues you want to play. He didn't say patronize the venues. <laughs> I knew you that know, was coming. But that seems to be done more often than, you know, patronizing so like patronizing would be well it's a little slippery slope because i don't even exactly know what it means but i think i do know what it means but that is to kind of come in and be like oh yeah this is this is i'm above this or i own this why aren't you giving me this you owe me this is that correct it's it's close Close. i mean i'm in the ballpark in the ballpark okay Yeah, so, so make sure that you're coming in in an appropriate way. And then, you know, for different venues, if, if it's maybe a little bit above your pay grade now, maybe for you as a leader, think about, you know, going and not only getting to know the venue, but get to know the musicians that play there. Maybe you can get on as a sideman so you can kind of learn 
uh, and, and develop and get yourself to that position. So maybe I could get like, like the third piano chair with some uh, Eastern European orchestra that's playing a concert next year at Carnegie Hall where it's just a nice easy part and then I'll work my way up to the second and then I'll eventually solo. Is this whole episode about your Carnegie Hall appearance? It's my Carnegie <laughs> Hall journey. Oh good, now it's an appearance. I'm excited. No, I think that is very important. So, you know, it's almost like this with, with any aspect of the music business or, or just business life in general, but it really is all about, you know, the relationships that you build and the only way to do that is to is to make yourself known to the people who who need to know who you are right whether that's the musicians or the the bookers or the owners um i like the musicians thing a lot i think there's a lot of work to be had in uh in in building relationships with musicians who are playing at the places that you want to play yeah i mean that's you know pretty much you, you know, for me, the gigs that I've gotten over the year as a leader, they've almost always come out of some relationship I had with another musician, maybe subbing for them first or playing in their band, then, and then they got to see me. But then you have to kind of put yourself out there at a certain point and say, look, I've got my own project here. Maybe yeah, I got this, this solo piano classical project, Carnegie Hall, and I just, I'm just throwing it out I'm there. I'm just throwing you know? it out there, yeah. <laughs> so um, now the next thing I want to talk about on this, and I don't know if we've talked about this, Adam, this is a little bit controversial, so feel free to uh, disagree or agree as it were, but that is to, you know, if there's a really good venue that maybe you're having trouble getting in, maybe go to the owner or the booker or the proprietor and offer to shoulder some of the promotion, if not all of the promotion for your gig, at least for a certain time period. Yeah, I understand why this would be controversial, but I'm a big believer in give, give the people no choice that you're trying to impress or that you want to book you. You know, give them no choice. Be, make them realize that like, Oh yeah, like of course I would book this band because they're going to bring in a lot of people and they're going to be awesome. Yep. Like you can never go wrong by promising to make people money. Well, you can go wrong if you don't well, make well, I them mean, money. <laughs> not, I shouldn't say promise, but but to show people that you can make them money. Yeah. Right. Yep. To to demonstrate that show you have, them the pathway at least. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Demonstrate that you have the ability to at least you know uh, communicate this project and to help put butts in the seats. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a yeah. no brainer to me. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what, you know, the flip side of it, playing, playing a little bit of devil's advocate is that a lot of musicians would say and, and adopt the attitude that, well, that's the venue's job is to promote the gig. Our job is to sound great and to work on our craft. And that's true, but it's a little bit of an old school way of thinking. And it's not that realistic uh, to how things work today. And I would also say that, yeah, it's a little bit more work that we have to do to promote the gig, but the advantage to that is that we can control our audience, have a little bit more of a direct relationship with our audience, which has not even been that possible to do until the last 15, 20 years anyway. Um, and then if that club or venue you know, goes out of business or changes ownership or something, you can go get another gig and bring your audience, and, and you've got the leverage actually now because you're connecting directly with the audience as opposed to the venue controlling the audience. I mean, don't you think it kind of depends on the venue for this yeah. kind of stuff? Like my wife and I have had this argument for 15 years because my wife works in restaurants and sometimes she would work in restaurants that have bands and she would always want to hire bands that would bring in a big crowd to the restaurant. I'm like, but it's a restaurant. You should be hiring the bands to entertain your like you don't hire the chef because he's going to bring in all his work buddy. You know right, what I mean? Right. Like that, that's not how that works. But on the other hand, if people are buying tickets to see a concert, right. you know, you have to be able to sell tickets. Like, yep. And in this day and age, just like you said, there's so many tools for promotion that we can rely on ourselves um, that we almost don't need them. Like 
honestly, sometimes I don't want them doing it, the, the venues doing it. Like right. I'd rather do it myself Yep. because I know I can frame it in a way that is more honest to me and will hit you know, people I know like my music. Right. You can control the messaging. That's why I told Carnegie Hall for my solo classical recital, mm-hmm. don't put the poster out. Don't put it in the New York Times. I am going to send all my people an email announcing this concert. So bold. I will take care of it. All right? This guy's been in the classical scene for two minutes. He's already a pro. Yeah, but I mean, I think back, to, and I think this also needs to be appropriate to the place you are in your career. And it's not even necessarily by age. It's just kind of, you know, there's times when we're hungry yep. and you'll do anything. And I, and I think, like, generally that's a good thing. And I look back on, you know, at times when I was super hungry, just wanted to play so much, I'd be willing to do anything. Some good things actually came out of that. I mean, when I was first in New Orleans and was in my early 20s, I had a trio with, uh, you know, two, two of my best friends at the time, Christopher Thomas on bass, Brian Blade on drums. A couple of slouches then. A couple of slouches. And like, we played all this. I mean, like we would get up in the morning and rehearse and then like play chess, go to the coffee shop and then go rehearse. I mean, we were rehearsing we were the most rehearsingest trio that had no gigs ever. That's yeah. dope, though. Yeah, we were just, like, rehearsing. And so when, once we got an opportunity to do a gig, we actually were doing gigs for free. Like, we told the club owners in New Orleans, we're like, we'll just do a gig. We still had to talk them into it. They were good th- venues, though. You know? listen, think of that. Think of Peter Martin and Chris Thomas <laughs> and Brian Play doing free gigs. Yeah, and then not only that, we... Nothing we, to complain about. We did free gigs... But this is the thing. There were good venues, like with a good piano and stuff. Right, and right. Like they were listening. You rooms. knew they were going to present you well. Right? Yeah, yeah, and that's really all we cared about. Totally. I mean, yeah, we wanted to make money and needed it, but we were like, I don't know. We, we didn't really have, I mean, we were getting some other gigs, but we no, wanted to it. play as a trio. Yeah. We wanted to play as a trio. And, and having that audience is valuable. Right. And totally. so we, like, I mean, we went to a great club that I ended up playing for years, and then they promoted me and paid me for many years. But I started out, this is Snug Harbor. Yeah. We played every Tuesday night for a whole summer. I think this was 91. It was either 90, no, it was 92. It was 92. Um, and the club had actually kind of changed ownership and was even closed for a while. And we played the opening night. They were trying to reopen and they had no money. I mean, like they knew that the club was in a good location and that it could do something, but they literally had no money. And the, the owner uh, was a great guy, George Brumatz, told us at the time, he's like, man, I'd love to have you, but sorry, I don't have any money. We're like, we'll come play for free. He's like, no, I feel bad. We said, no, we'll do it. And then he's like, but I don't know if anyone's going to come because we're going to reopen, but no one thinks we're going to be able to open till next week. Hmm. So we said, we'll make flyers. And he helped us make the flyers. He copied them for him. And like, we'll ride around town. We we're on our bikes. And we rode around town. Like two, yeah, yeah. We're like putting up signs, gig tonight, free. Oh you know, Peter Martin, Brian Blade, Chris Thomas. And we played the gig. And it was, I'm so glad we did that because that led to us playing the next week. And then we played every Tuesday night. And then we eventually started doing weekends. And we played with, you know, Jermaine Basil. And we did a lot of gigs. They came out of that. And we built up our audience there. And he um, rode that gig all the way to Carnegie Hall. So. All the way. I'm <laughs> ooh, so close. So close. So. Anyway, you'll hear it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the You'll Hear It podcast. You can go to you'llhearit.com to get more information, submit a question, or just say hello. Wait, you can do that? Absolutely. All right. And if you like what you heard, please leave a review and a rating below. Thanks. Thanks.